Good morning. Open your Bibles now to the book of Acts. Today we are in chapter 17 as we continue with Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke on the second missionary journey. Today they will go to two cities, uh, one being Thessalonica. We have the books 1st and 2nd Thessalonians in the Bible because Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke went there. And then we also uh, see them go to Berea, uh, which was a city about 30 miles from Thessalonica. And in the course of the sermon, I will tell you why Paul selected some cities and passed over others. I don't know if you've ever wondered about that, what led him to go where he, part of it was a vision God gave him about a man in Macedonia. But that said, today we're going to look at the first 15 verses of the book of Acts. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ, or that is Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now those Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitated and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is God's word, let us pray. Father, we do pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Amen. 
Luke presents a pair of contrasting narratives highlighting the different responses of the Jews in Thessalonica on one hand and the Jews in Berea to the gospel itself. The pairing, pairing of the uh, narratives were done by Luke for a rhetorical purpose. The response of the Bereans as a community of Jews stands out because they were open, open-hearted, and they uh, examine the scriptures. Which scriptures are Paul talking about? He hasn't written any of them other than Galatians yet, and so he's talking about the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about. And in the synagogue, the Old Testament was regularly uh, discussed and preached and commented upon. And so the Berean community examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying had any validity or truth. And although some Jews and God-fearers in Thessalonica were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, others from the synagogue became very jealous. They sought the help of bad characters in the marketplace as well as city officials to oppose the preachers. Paul's proclamation of Jesus' messianic kingship was used by his Jewish opponents as a basis for claiming that the newcomers and the followers were socially and politically dangerous. Isn't it interesting that they are the ones charged with disturbing the peace when in reality it was the mob inspired by jealous Jewish leaders that stirred the mob up. Often, whatever we accuse other people of, we are doing. I can remember uh, ourselves. It's hard to see that. But you need somebody like my wife who when I will condemn or criticize someone viciously, she said, well, yeah, I understand what you're saying. It wasn't that nearly that bad when you did it. That's why you love to have a wife that loves you enough to tell you stuff like that. And, uh, but it's true, isn't it? Don't you find that true that what aggravates you about someone else? I'll meet someone and my wife and I will get in the car and go home. Well, what do you think of so-and-so? I said, well, I don't know. Jerry's out. I don't know. I, he's all right. And she'd go, well, he reminds me a lot of you. So be careful what you say and what you think. But let's dive right in and see uh, three things from this passage today. We're going to look at the persuasion and persecution <clears throat> at Thessalonica. We're going to look at the searchers of the scriptures at Berea, and then we're going to conclude with some reflections and implications for living today. The experiences of Paul, Timothy, Silas, and the, at Thessalonica and Berea illustrate the diverse responses that the gospel elicited in the Jewish synagogues of the dispersion and still evoke today. At Thessalonica, conversion of many God-fearing Gentiles and prominent women provoked people to jealousy and then recruited a mob of unsavory Gentiles to stir up a riot. We've said that already. Against Paul and his company. At Berea, on the other hand, we see them give a fair hearing to the gospel message and they were testing it by the scripture. As a result, many Jews as well as Greek noblewomen and men, came to faith in Jesus Christ. 
The Thessalonian Jews' relentless pursuit of the missionaries to Berea revealed the hypocrisy of their charge that Christians threatened the peace and order of society. In fact, it was the enemies of the gospel who provoked civil unrest that so alarmed the Roman authorities. Because of the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, Thessalonica was a strategic objective as Paul's team traveled well along the maintained, well-maintained Roman highway, the Via Ignatia from Philippi. The distance was about 100 miles where we last left them, divided roughly into thirds by Amphipolis and Apollonia, in which no doubt they stayed overnight, even on horseback. Uh, the whole journey was still taken three days. And although Amphipolis was a prominent city, Paul was eager to reach Thessalonica. Why? Because they had a Jewish synagogue. Paul always went to the Jew first, and he always went to the synagogue for a number of reasons. He knew that at least those people were steeped in an understanding of the Old Testament. They had, he had something to build a case on in reasoning out of the scriptures with them. But he also knew at the synagogue there were a lot of Greek and Gentile uh, people who had not yet converted to Judaism, not yet undergone circumcision, but who were there who were also fearing God and were open to the scriptures and were reachable, so to speak. So that is why Paul chose the cities that he chose. Paul... Uh, went there because it had a Jewish community large enough to sustain a synagogue. We know that that required at least 10 men. Thessalonica was also the capital of the province of Macedonia. And for this reason, too, it was a strategic site for fulfilling the call issued through Paul's vision in Troas to the help the Macedonians by bringing the good news of Jesus. Luke calls attention to Paul's targeting first the synagogue congregation composed of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles at Thessalonica as well as in other cities. In Thessalonica, Paul had opportunity over three Sabbaths to open up these scriptures explaining, that is, very same word that's used on the road to Emmaus where Paul opens up the scriptures to those two men who were traveling with him. And Paul does the same thing here, the surprising message that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and then to rise from the dead. The same truth that Jesus' disciples could not see or understand until he opened their minds to it. Perhaps Paul cited such scriptures as Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53, which we have seen expounded in other places in the book of Acts. Having shown the suffering to glory agenda set out for the Messiah in Scripture, Paul affirmed that Jesus is this Messiah. Jesus fits the profile and fulfills the divine promises. So he's challenging the Jews, particularly in places like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16, to see that the concept of a Messiah who died is not foreign to their own scriptures. It's there in the Old Testament. It's clear. And so therefore, when Paul goes into the synagogues, he is trying to 
establish authority in the Old Testament for a Messiah who died, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is there presently as our great and faithful high priest who will one day return again. The seed of the word bore different proportions in fruit from the different categories of soils, remembering Jesus' parable. Some of the Jews were persuaded. The negative reaction of the majority will be seen soon. Whereas a large number, and when Luke uses a large number, he's, he's speaking conservatively, but it means a whole bunch, shall we say, of uh, God-fearing Greeks believed and prominent women not a few. Uh, not a few, which reappears in Greek at the end of verse 12, is Luke's understatement for a sizable number. No small is another one he uses when he talks about large results. And the conversion to Christ of so many God-fearers whom the Jews had hoped to draw into proselyte status inflamed the jealousy of some of the Jews, as had happened in Pisidian Antioch. The same Greek word expresses both jealousy and zeal, and in our own attitudes, the line between them is often very fine. We can easily believe that we're defending God's glory when we're actually avenging our own bruised egos as the Jews did here. And some of the worst ego bruising occurs in men of the cloth like me, pastors. Uh, you know, for some reason, God calls a man to preach the word, uh, he usually has to spend the rest of that man's life crushing his ego because it gets in the way. And so uh, mine's not totally crushed yet. I'm sure I got some more bruising to come. But a lot of our reactions, there's just a fine line. But instead of trying to refute Paul's biblical arguments, the Jews resorted to violence. There was no response or answer to what he was teaching. And they recruited a bunch of Gentile thugs who were loitering in the marketplace to create a disturbance and simulate a groundswell of public outrage against Paul and Silas. They stormed the house of Jason who had extended hospitality to Paul and Silas. And uh, th they had also opened their home as a gathering place for the church. But when the mob failed to find the missionaries, they seized Jason and other brothers who had gathered and dragged them into before city officials. The mob violence and false accusations marked just the beginning of the persecution suffered by the Thessalonian church. We'll see later in the book of Thessalonians uh, that that persecution was intensified in chapter 2, or, uh, verse 14, and then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. The mixed mob of Jews and Gentiles made no mention of the original motives for the Jews' anger. Their rejection of Paul's Christ-centered reading of Scripture and their envy at the gospel impact upon God-fearing Gentiles was pretty much the motive. Instead, they accused Jason of harboring troublemakers who had traveled from town to town fomenting civil unrest and disobedience to Caesar's decrees and treasonous allegiance to another king. So they played politics with religion here. 
and, and perhaps the rumors of the missionaries arrest at Philippi on charges of spreading customs unlawful for Roman city, citizens had reached Thessalonica, but these opponents did not know how or chose to suppress the end of the story, the magistrate's public apology. In proving that Jesus is the Christ, Paul did affirm that Jesus is king. But Jesus' rule dictated not revolution against Rome, but respectful submission to human rulers. Nevertheless, these charges were calculated to get the officials' attention, for the authorities throughout the empire feared few things more than violence and riots or any allegation that they would condone disloyalty to the Caesar. The city officials, though alarmed by the accusations, responded with prudent caution. Perhaps they had heard of the Philippian magistrates' embarrassment, and they didn't want to imitate their error, but they required Jason and the others to post bond, uh, financially guaranteeing that their guests would not provoke disorder or promote rebellion, and then they released them. And at night, to forestall a secret assault, the brothers sent Paul and Silas with Timothy away from Thessalonica, and they made their way west 50 miles to Berea, where another sizable Jewish community with its own synagogue resided. So again, we see the strategy and the agenda of the apostle Paul and Silas. They would go to the cities that were large enough and influential enough, and through the dispersion of the Jews throughout the known world, they would find a city with a synagogue and there began their work. Same thing we do when we talk to people who we know have a biblical background, at least to some degree. They either grew up in church or maybe they were Roman Catholic and at least they have some knowledge. But then you run into, on the other hand, people who are what we, we would call proselytes, Gentiles who attended the synagogue and were faithful in their attendance, who feared God, who understood some of the scriptures in the Old Testament, but had not yet converted in total to Judaism. Here, that is where Paul had his greatest success and response in preaching the gospel. Now, let us move on to our second point, the searchers of the scriptures at Berea. And these people uh, stand out in all of the book of Acts as some of the most exemplary believers. The Berean Jews exhibited more noble character than the Thessal Thessalonians, at least in the opening and discerning hearing they gave to Paul as he spoke in the synagogue. Because he argued from the scriptures that God had purpose for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, they turned to the scriptures to test Paul's claim on behalf of Jesus. In fact, they interacted with Paul not only on the Sabbath day, but every day, diligently pursuing the truth in God's word. It was no coincidence then, when many of the Jews of Berea believed, for in testifying about Jesus, the scriptures create and strengthen faith in him. The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
and that faith is both created and strengthened as we are more and more exposed to the Word of God. Do you read the Bible? Do you study the Bible? Or is the Bible on your shelf under about three inches of dust or somewhere in your car or you can't find it? The reason why so much of our faith is anemic is we don't feed our faith. That which creates it out of nothing, as it were, is the Word of God. It is alive and powerful and sharp and strong and it feeds the soul and it nourishes us and it builds us up in the faith. The question I have for you, are you regularly reading the Bible? Are you praying through the Scriptures? Are you studying the Scriptures? Especially in times like these, where we're all undergoing so many uh, changes and so much crisis in so many directions, how we need a rock to stand upon. And the Bible, the reason why the Bible strengthens our faith, is the Bible points us toward Christ, who is everything to us, who is our strength, who is our peace, who is our life. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. It was no coincidence then when many of the Jews of Berea believed they understood what John had said in his gospel chapter 5 that the scriptures create and strengthen faith in him. Many of the city's socialites and Greek men also believed as in Thessalonica the conversion of prominent women is noted. Although God calls men to exercise sacrificial leadership in the church and the church throughout Acts, he highlights his welcome of women as well as men into the family, which in the times was counterintuitive, counterintuitive to the max. Women received more liberation through the ministry, person, and work and encouragement of Jesus Christ than anything else that's ever occurred in the culture. And you can't read the Bible without understanding that and seeing that clearly. It elevated the status of women. The Jews of Thessalonica, however, were hostile to God's Word, and they traveled the two days' journey to Berea, 50 miles, to stir up another mob to attack Paul there. Luke uses two verbs, agitating, stirring up, to emphasize the irony that the gospel's enemies are guilty of the very civil disruption with which they accused Paul and Silas. Long ago, King Ahab of Israel labeled Elijah the troubler of Israel because the prophet had announced that the Lord would humble his idolatrous people through a severe drought. Elijah rightly responded that Ahab was the real troublemaker for Israel because the king had abandoned the Lord's commands and imposed Baal worship upon God's people. Likewise, in Paul's day, the disturbers of the peace were not the servants of King Jesus, but rather those who resisted the truth and the reign of Christ himself. One of the ways that we adorn the truth of the gospel that we announce is through lives of integrity and peaceful harmony and respectful submission. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends upon you. Live peaceably with all. Pay to all what is owed. 
Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And so the, the uh, Bereans stand out as a, an example of those who poured over the word to see if what Paul and Silas were preaching had any validity. How do we measure the truth of what anyone is saying? How do we know what we know? In the realm of philosophy, that is called epistemology. Uh, the teaching or doctrine of knowing. How do we know what we know? Upon what basis are we a, a, asserting any assert, uh, assertion we make? What is our presupposition? What is our groundwork? To what authority do we appeal for saying or doing anything as God's people? And, and the resounding answer is the word of the living God. That is our foundation. But how do I know? God's word is God's word. How do I know that? Am I just deluded? Am I deceived? A am I thinking uh, that, well, I grew up in church and this sounds right to me, uh, or I've never heard anything else that's more credible? How do you know God's word is God's word? How do you know it's true? John Calvin was asked that question. And John Calvin said there's only one way you will ever know God's word is God's word. The Holy Spirit, who comes into the life of a believer and indwells him at regeneration, testifies to the truth of God's Word. How do I know God's Word is God's Word? The Holy Spirit affirms it and confirms it and drives it deep into my consciousness that that is the truth. I have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. And when I hear the truth, I know it's the truth. It rings with the Spirit's testimony inside. The Spirit testifies not only to my sonship in Christ, but also to the truth of God's Word. I don't expect any unbeliever or person who doesn't uh, read or understand anything about I don't expect them to accept the Bible is truth however it is the spirit that takes that truth and uses it to create in the heart of people hearing judicious hearing and response to God's word God's word is the final authority for all believers. God's word is the supreme court above all supreme courts in deciding uh, issues of practice and faith in the church and in the world. And so how grateful we are that God has opened our eyes to see the beauty and glory of the truth. But Luke as he talks about these Thessalonian believers and their acceptance of the gospel, he, he's, he draws his reader's attention to the attitude to the scriptures adopted by both the speaker and hearers. As evidenced by the verbs he piles up, uh, in Thessalonica, Paul reasoned, explained, proved, proclaimed, and persuaded while in Berea, Jews eagerly received the message and diligently examined the scriptures. It was inevitable in Jewish evangelism that the Old Testament scriptures should be both textbook and court of appeal. 
What is impressive is that neither speaker nor hearers use Scripture in a superficial, unintelligent, proof-texting way. On the contrary, Paul argued out of the Scriptures and the Bereans examined them to see if his arguments were cogent. And we may be sure that Paul welcomed and encouraged this thoughtful response. He believed in doctrine but not in indoctrination without theological content. Um, he also gave uh, to the hearers, whoever they were, and we'll see this the next time we're in the book of Acts, uh, his sermon on Mars Hill as, as to the way he changes his style of preaching given the audience that he's preaching to. Which leads me to one last thing. How to listen to a sermon. How to evaluate preachers and their authenticity and their uh, integrity. And so here are a few things I wanted to give to you. And these are very practical instructions on how you can listen to a sermon like a Berean. Number one, how much of the sermon is derived from Scripture and how much of it is just platitudes, adages, or the attitudes uh, of the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, and the vain philosophies of men. So many sermons these days are filled with therapeutic models of self-help rather than expositions of the Word of God. Don't you go to a church where the Bible is not preached and expounded to you. That's what preaching with authority is. I have no authority in and of myself. My ordination doesn't give me authority. But what gives authority to anyone who preaches is are they preaching the Bible? Not a message about the Bible, but the Bible itself, the Word, is explained to you. That is key. I wouldn't go to a church for 30 seconds where there was not consistent exposition of the Word of God. Is the sermon based on the teaching of the whole of Scripture understood as having essential unity and coherence? Does it hang together with the rest of what Scripture says as you listen to a sermon? Is the sermon engaged in employing one verse as the hermeneutical key to the understanding of every other verse or rather, does it take the whole of Scripture together, the essential harmony of the, own, of the Bible? Is the sermon sensitive to the lines of continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Covenants, and therefore between the Old and the New Testament uh, itself? Is the sermon suggesting that in order to understand Scripture, you have to have a Ph.D. in postmodern hermeneutics? Rather than re uh, recognize the perspicuity of Scripture, the understandableness and the clearness as... Now, some passages are incredibly difficult. Some passages require greater precision. But, it, it, you know, and I, I really get upset with these preachers, and I guess I'm riding a little hobby horse here. Let me criticize them because I've probably done it. Um, People who use the original languages like Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament to undermine your confidence in the Bible you hold in your hand. We should never do that preaching. Why? Because the guys that translated, 
The Bible that you hold in your hand from the original languages have forgotten more Hebrew and Greek than any guy like me, all of us together, would ever know. They have given their lives to the understanding of the Scripture. And so when someone begins to take the Bible apart and starts throwing around fancy Greek and Hebrew terms, be on your toes. Be on your toes, especially to defend some silly um, proposition. Is the sermon exposing sin for what it is, not flattering the hearer, hearer with overblown schemes of self-esteem? Giving a, a, a biblically fo fo focused message about sin and the need of grace. Is this message ultimately good news? Or does it just tell you over and over again, try harder, try harder, try harder? Is it promising what it cannot deliver or delivering what it is never promised? As a response to the initiative of grace, does the sermon encourage a Christ-focused way of holiness that avoids legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other? Lawism or libertarianism, in the biblical sense of the term, not political? Does this sermon encourage us to live in such a way that we take seriously all of our responsibilities in this world, but in such a way that we are also living ultimately for the world to come? Certainly not an exhaustive list. But that's what goes into being a Berean kind of Christian, where you are evaluating what you hear from whatever source. Some Christians have developed a critical spirit by which they are no longer able to appreciate the good and helpful aspects of any sermon and merely focus on what is deficient. Behind that usually lies a form of spiritual snobbery and arrogance. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he was not preaching at the Metropolitan uh, pulp, uh, Street Pulpit in uh, London, would often visit the church he was converted in. And it was a Methodist church. And the Methodist church was certainly very different from, Cal, uh, from uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon's point of view as a Reformed Baptist. But he would go back to that church, and so one day one of his deacons pulled him aside and said, why do you go to that church? He said, well, for one reason, I was converted there. And he said, the second reason is, he said, sometimes it's good to go to a church so you can know what not to believe instead of what to believe. Now, I don't encourage you to do that, but I do encourage you, put your head on when you, when you hear somebody preaching. People can be compelling. People can sound convincing. When they're pushing snake oil, when they're selling you poison, when they're destroying you, and sometimes the larger the venue, the more questionable you should be because uh, there's, a, there's a million of them out there. A million of them. And so the Bereans not only received and researched the Word of God, they responded to the Word of God, and they engaged in faith and repentance, and they were built up in the faith. And so the question you should always be asking yourself when listening to any sermon is, does that agree with what the Bible says? And questions are not out of the question. Questions for clarification are fine and legitimate. But uh, as we leave Berea next week 
Won't be next week because I'm going to do a Christmas message next week out of Philippians. But uh, Paul will address the Areopagus and we will see a whole different way Paul approaches the preaching of the Word. Again, let me encourage you. Test everything you hear. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Scriptures, that they are the truth, and that by them we can know who you are, who we are, what you have done to fix the mess we are in, what you are continuing to do in our hearts, and what you will do when you come again, and what eternity with you forever and ever will be like. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your word that speaks so truly to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.